How many lawyers are in the house? Mm. Nice. Welcome. We don't have CLE for this. But we can in the future. So it is 7 o'clock. We will start. Thank you all for attending this evening. Welcome to Law and Thunder. My name is Joshua Gilliland, and I am one of the co-founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks, and Jessica. Jessica Anderson is the other co-founder. We haven't been on the same stage together at Comic-Con since 2018, so this is our 10th anniversary, and it's awesome to celebrate it with all of you. Introducing our panel, to my left is Judge Stan Boone. Need to see a federal judge with personality. <laughs> <laughs> to Judge Boone's left is Gabby Martin. <laughs> to Gabby's left is Stephen Colafield. <laughs> to Stephen's left is Crystal Swanson. <laughs> and to Crystal's left is Jessica Peterson. So yes. We are going to spoil everything in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and Thor Love and Thunder. Warning you now, because that's how legal analysis works. So the first issue is how do we prosecute Wanda of 616 for dreamwalking in Wanda from 838 and committing multiple crimes and homicides? And the answer to that is it's really complicated. First off, you might wonder, is there a thing like universal jurisdiction? There is, but it's for things like war crimes and piracy. She's not doing either of those. However, if she decided to wipe out the entire state of Maine, we probably have a war crime. However, that's not what happens. Everything she does is personal and specific. Now, you might wonder, was there territorial jurisdiction? And the answer to that is yes. You can be prosecuted for committing a crime in a specific place. She dreamwalks and takes Wanda 838 from New Jersey, goes to New York. That's kidnapping. <laughs> When she goes and confronts the Illuminati in New York, she kills them all. That's murder. <laughs> New York would have jurisdiction. Both states allow for prosecution for Wanda of 616 because she committed crimes in their states in 838. However, extradition would be super complicated. <laughs> Which then brings us to, to understand what the charges are, and that's false imprisonment, because Wanda of 838 is trapped under a rebel in her own mind. That's weird. She takes uh, Wanda of uh, 838 to New, uh, to New York, and then all the murders. So, all bad. But now, how do we defend Wanda of 838 for Wanda of 616 for committing crimes in 838's body. Jessica, can you walk us through this? Sure, thanks, Josh. So, poor Wanda 838 
Because a lot of people are like, she was sad. She had to kill the vision. Her kids were imaginary and disappeared. So she felt the only thing she could do was to go to another dimension, kill America Chavez in order to get her power so she could then kill another version of herself to take back Wanda's children. And, and some people might, might think, well, you know, she was sad and sympathetic. And because she was reading The Dark World, she didn't know what she was doing. Stephen, you know, let's talk about is being intoxicated by the dark hole, a defense. Yeah, that's, uh, spoiler alert, probably not. But, um, <laughs> but the, um, the idea that Jessica was talking about, about how the monotony rule um, uh, excuses criminal conduct if the uh, defendant doesn't understand what they're doing is right or wrong based on some mental defect or uh, defect of reason, rather, is what the traditional rule is. Um, and so if you were representing Wanda in People versus Maximoff, and defending her against this litany of crimes that she's committed, you might try to argue to the judge or the jury that she was under the influence of this ancient, powerful relic that corrupted her senses in a way that made it impossible for her to understand what was right and what was wrong. And if you were doing that, you might put Dr. Strange on the stand and have him re repeat what he told Wong, which was, Wanda's gone. She has the dark hold, and the dark hold has her. So that, would, that might go to the defense that she is no longer in control of her senses. She's been hijacked by this other illness. However, um, California Penal Code Section 29H would actually prohibit the jury from considering the insanity defense in this case if the prosecution proved that the dark one was more like an intoxicant. Because California has, has uh, created a statute that says that that mental defect can't be the result of intoxication or drug or alcohol abuse. So she might not really be able to use that intoxicant or that insanity defense based on her purposeful availment or intoxication by that dark, dark power. Yeah, so this is one of the few times her reading's bad. So, <laughs> so let's talk about uh, the duty of care for America Chavez when she arrives in the 616 universe and Dr. Strange 
starts becoming the best uncle in the multiverse. <laughs> Judge Ben. So, so delinquency law has changed uh, in the past 10 years. Uh, delin <laughs> Sorry, the Comic-Con look. So delinquency law has changed uh, in the past 10 years, and it's gone more of society recognizing that people under a certain age have less culpability when it comes to civil liability and criminal liability. And that has been a shift. But then when you factor in a third party, somebody else assisting in it, that shift of society goes to that third party. So delinquency, aiding and abetting in the criminal context, duty of care. Duty of care is a civil concept, uh, more so. And w in this particular situation, you have Dr. Strange taking American Chavez in terms of, sh she appears to have these powers, but taking, taking her and not necessarily, um, he has a duty of care once he kind of brings her into the fold and says, this is what I'm gonna do, because he sees her powers, right? He utilizes those powers, and he kind of embellishes upon those powers. He's assumed a duty of care. And law would recognize that when you do that, you owe a duty, and you could be in a potential breach of that duty of care. And by breaching that duty of care, then Dr. Strange could be liable for civil damages as a result of things done by American Chavez. So, now, the question is, what is the duty of care? And in, in the Marvel context, as we look at duty of care, we may want to readjust what is, what is common, what is reasonable to society. So as we know, you know, we're, there's always, in any Marvel situation, there will be massive destruction, either in New York or some big town. Does that change your duty of care and the liability, et cetera? Um, here, in analyzing it, I would say that Dr. Strange owes the duty of care because he basically assumed it. He basically breached it because he kind of let her, uh, you know, be gone uh, <laughs> and not really controlled that, uh, utilized the powers, and therefore he would be liable, in my opinion. Uh, and again, my opinions do not reflect the views of the federal courts. <laughs> I do not want this cited in a brief. Thank you. Thank you. Gabby, let's talk about the jurisdiction of the Illuminati. Yes. So, so we see the Illuminati, um, and they seem to have this kind of very wide-reaching jurisdiction, right? You have 616 Strange kind of brought before them, um, and they're claiming that they're there to protect against convergences and, and, and kind of bring um, those who interfere with that, kind of like the TVA, right, you know, to, to kind of um, bring those to justice. Um, but it's, it's unclear what their jurisdiction is exactly. So um, territorial jurisdiction, as you mentioned earlier, would apply to property persons acts within the territory. 616 is not, 616 Strange is not really acting. He's there, he's, he's you know, he ended up there in 838 with um, America Chavez, but he's not um, really, you know, uh, doing anything there. So it, it would go more to that kind of universal jurisdiction that you were talking about, which is when a state has a jurisdiction to define or prescribe punishment for certain offenses recognized as a community of nations as universal concern. So I think the Illuminati would argue that convergences and preventing convergences would be a matter of universal concern, and we're talking multi, multiple universes in this case. And then for the do 
process. It's unclear whether Doctor Strange actually gets due process because he is brought <laughs> before a panel, um, but and a judicial panel at that. But he's not really given due process, and so we we think about procedural due process as the requirement that um, uh, when the federal government acts in such a way that denies a citizen of life, liberty, or property interest, they must be given notice, an opportunity to be heard, and a decision by a neutral decision maker. Now, two things. I don't think he was given notice. He's maybe, he's kind of told that he's, you know, going to be going before the Illuminati. But the question here is, does he have an opportunity to be heard before things go south? And is it a neutral decision maker? I would think the Illuminati is not a neutral decision maker in this case. Uh, no. Uh, they've, they've already judged him based upon their strange. Yeah. And just to highlight that the requirements were written by a judge friendly, mm -hmm. making the possibility of somebody named Dr. Strange way more likely. So let's talk about the liability for the rampage that uh, Wanda does <laughs> to all of those sorcerers who end up as cannon fodder. Jessica. Okay, so That's what we civil litigators look at. What kind of
Yeah, and working in a law firm that specializes in insurance coverage, the intentional acts would not be covered under her homeowner policy. <laughs> so, let's switch to love and thunder. Gore kills his own deity. <laughs> Stephen, can we can he be defended for doing that? Uh, so I love Gore. I um, I'm not sure that his what his experience would justify his deicidal rampage across the cosmos. But when it comes to Raku, his god, I think he has some strong arguments. Um, so first off, um, and by the way, as you might know, Nick Fury once told. Um, saying that he was right, but he certainly made some points. Um, so, the, um, so the first defense would be self-defense, um, I would say, uh, because of Gore being choked out by Raku, uh, California Penal Code 197 justifies uh, violence uh, and uh, justifies crimes if someone is in imminent bodily harm. Um, and certainly uh, Gore was in uh, an imminent risk of, of could have used up to and including lethal force to defend himself. Next, we can consider insanity, which we've kind of talked about, um, because the it looked like the necro sword sort of hijacked his ability to, to make decisions, and that maybe the defense could liken that to a mental um, uh, a defective reason because he's being influenced by that. And it looked like the necro sword kind of rose up into his hand of its own accord. It wasn't like he chose it. So he has maybe a stronger argument using the monotony Finally, provocation, um, which is not a complete defense to crimes, but recall that Raku had sort of said really nasty things to Gore and diminished him and his and all mortals from worshiping God and saying and being so sort of foolish um, when Gore had just been through a terrible family experience based on their faith. And so he, um, so the provocation defense comes into play when the victim says or does something not violent, but something that just makes the defendant see red and they just react violently. Um, and in California, it doesn't, um, it's not, like I said, not a complete defense, but it can uh, reduce the charges, the severity of the charges. So it can reduce first degree murder, second degree murder, or murder to manslaughter with the idea that they, um, the, the defendant did not have the kind of uh, rigorous planning that went into the, into the murder, which is kind of a, a heat of passion um, crime. So um, it, his other defenses are probably Let's talk about the necessity defense to steal that thunderbolt. So th this is like, this, this could be a whole panel discussion. Um, and, and frankly, this is a law school problem. So if there's any law professors out there, just convert this one. So let, let me set the stage on this. So Thor and team come to, to take, to ask to use the uh, lightning, you know, the thunderbolt, okay? He comes. Then they discover him, so he comes under maybe false pretenses, maybe not, but really not with the criminal intent. And keep in mind that necessity for those of you out there. I'm going to tell you about necessity. Don't leave. <laughs> so this, this is going to be on the exam. Okay, that didn't, that didn't work either. Okay, necessity is otherwise criminal conduct that becomes a defense in responding to another crime. Okay? So... 
what is otherwise a crime may not be a crime because it's out of necessity. So that's what it is. So here it is. So Thor and team come. Thor's discovered. Then he's sexually assaulted by Zeus. <laughs> then Zeus and them get into it. And then Thor murders him, or does he? And uh, then as a result of that, is it attempted murder? And then in the end, they take the thunderbolt. Is there necessity there? The biggest thing that, that, that really addressed, that really hit me was, what law do I apply? What law do I apply? Do I apply the Greek laws? Okay. Um, the Greeks don't recognize the Norse gods. Okay. Do I apply God on God law? You know, that's something we also learned in law school. Um, <laughs> about God on God. And, and what do you do? Like, but in, in God law, you really have no necessity. It's like you just, you're God. You get to do whatever you want to do because you're God. And so, so part of it is, how, what laws do you apply? Traditional Anglo um, jurisprudence that we apply would probably suggest that necessity is a viable defense. I think under Norse law, I think clearly that would be necessity uh, because they're Norse. They go around, they do these things, it's necessity. So therefore, God on God law, I would say, mm, I think, necessity would still be recognized because again that kind of combat situation that there is no higher being in terms of uh, the analysis so in the end i would say that necessity is probably there there could be some other issues especially i think jury nullification uh with the sexual assault or as my wife called it art uh when she watched the movie but nevertheless uh, i would say that the necessity applies Um, and under the California law, the elements of the necessity 
so, so yeah. he would say that when I was gone defending the galaxy, I yeah. was serving the Avengers. You can't count that time away as our separation. So she might have a tougher time adding up that time. But, um, we'll see. So anyway, I just thought that was a really, um, I, I really love seeing the relationship and how the law tries to accommodate those complicated human things. So let's talk about does Jane actually own Mjolnir now? And Gabby, help us understand. Yeah, and, and that, of course, if she did, if she was gifted Mjolnir by Thor, um, which a gift is a, tr a gift by transfer of ownership, where the donor does not receive full compensation, right? So normally when there is a transfer of ownership, there's consideration, usually money, um, in, in, in exchange for the gift, or for the, for the uh, rights of ownership. So. That would be so much more complicated if they were married, and if he had gifted her something, does she get? Does he get those rights back upon the divorce? Is it considered community property? Which those of you who are in law school or were through law school know that community property is a whole thing um, when it comes to family law. Um, so, um, but the thing is, is Mjolnir might be considered abandoned property. So abandoned property refers to any personal property that is left by an owner who has intentionally relinquished all rights to its control. So in Ragnarok, Mjolnir is exploded. Thor does not make any attempt to kind of put it back together. He goes, he makes Stormbreaker, um, and he you know, takes the steps to get a new weapon. He doesn't go to seek Mjolnir again. So based on the time that's passed, about five, seven years or so, he's abandoned it. He's not gone to seek it. So when Jane comes to get it, it could be considered that a gift that he, get, he put the enchantment on Mjolnir to protect her, therefore it is hers, or she could have simply picked up abandoned property and now has the rights of ownership to that property. However, there's a, there's a little twist because that property was abandoned where New Asgard sits. And New Asgard has now built a whole monument to it. So consider, does New Asgard own Mjolnir and Jane is actually taking Mjolnir from New Asgard? So, lots of, of quandaries to ponder. So, <clears throat> Let's talk about child kidnapping, a fun night subject on a Saturday night. Judge Boone, help us with this. So kidnapping requires a scienter. Okay, this is cocktail talk, everybody. Scienter, so next cocktail. So scienter is a mental state, your mens rea. What is your mental state? In other words, the intent to take the children. You don't require, it is not required per se uh, to cross state lines or galaxy lines, but here you... That's what makes it federal, but <laughs> nevertheless, in this particular situation, it would cross some sort of lines from New Asgard uh, to the Shadow Realm, all right? Now, is there necessity? Uh, no, no. Any way you wanna, uh, if there's any defense attorneys out there, I know your mind is going on that one right now, that you're thinking because the purpose is, I'm really not gonna harm the kids, which is not an element of kidnapping, by the way. Harming is an enhancement if it goes the wrong way, if you know what I mean, okay? But nevertheless, is, is what, what Gore doing in this particular situation, is it justified? But think about what he's doing, why he's bringing the kids there, because in the end, he wants to kill. 
So I don't think the jury would necessarily buy that. There's clear liability for the kids. The question is, and we've, we've kind of raised this a couple of times, is, is the necrosword creating, negating that mental state, doing something with the mental state of gore that makes him not have that scienter necessary to meet the elements of the kidnapping charge. Uh, I would probably say not, based upon the evidentiary record that exists in the movie, which I carefully listened, you know, watched while I was eating my popcorn and soda, uh, you know. But nevertheless, I, I think that liability here would exist for Gore. Gore was right. Also, he's not guilty. <laughs> so, uh, they all say that. <laughs> Crystal, let's talk about the. Uh, unintentional infliction of emotional distress by Zeus stripping Thor in public. The infamous stripping of Thor. Otherwise known as art. understand the duty to rescue. Yeah, and this is this is kind of a fascinating question because it's it's it really is the duty of care that the deities have that is the crux of Gore's mission, right? So that they failed in their duty of care to starting with Raku, that they have failed and that is why he does what he does. He takes extrajudicial action 
to punish the gods for their failure um, to follow their duty of care. Um, so under traditional tort law, um, there really isn't a duty um, to come to the aid of a stranger. Like if you just see somebody, you know, fall over, there's not, you don't owe a duty of care to them to go help them, to go assist them. Morally, maybe, but legally, no, you don't. Um, you have no duty to protect others from criminal acts of third parties. If you see somebody getting mugged, you really don't have any sort of legal obligation to do anything about it. You could call the cops, but you're not legally obligated to. An exception is when an affirmative duty is created to protect another from harm. The exception applies, if the exception applies, liability may be imposed despite the absence of negligence. So even if you don't act negligently, if there is a duty of care, an affirmative duty of care to protect another, then you may be liable. When do these affirmative duties come up? With special relationships. So parent, child, um, employer, all those kind of spouses, those sorts of special relationships. What do those all have in common? Is when one party is entrusted with the well-being of another party. And again, we're taking some legal fiction here, but I think based on the God's role is they are entrusted with the well-being of their followers. So therefore, under the law, depending on what law mm -hmm. we, we look at. Choice of law. Uh, choice of law. Um, <laughs> There, they would have an affirmative duty to protect their followers. Now, the Asgardian children aren't necessarily their followers. So there may not be that affirmative duty. Is it morally right? Yes. But they may not, as Thor has an affirmative duty, the other Norse gods do, but maybe not all of the gods of omnipotent city. All right, since we have 10 minutes left for all the panelists, it's lightning round. Crystal, let's talk about noise complaints for the ghosts. That's it. What is a nuisance? Nuisance can be public, it can be private. Public is public, private is not public. I did find specific ghost framing litigation. <laughs> Child endangerment by 
by empowering all of those Asgardian children with the power of Thor for a limited time only. No, because their lives were in danger, this is pure necessity of defense, he couldn't take them back to New Asgard because he had to stop Gore. He couldn't just leave them for the Shadow Realm monsters to kill the children. No, he powered them up and then they kick ass wearing little princess costumes and a bunny and they unleash hell and it's glorious and I will defend that. <laughs> so, no, it's not child endangerment. So, because it's the necessity to defend others. So, can Thor legally adopt love, Crystal? No, 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 no. <laughs> you can adopt someone who is at least 10 years younger than you. We have no idea how old love is. Was she reincarnated? Is she even still Thor's child? Um, she would be adopted into a family with Auntie Hella and Uncle Loki, which is not good. <laughs> <laughs> guardian, and I think he's raising her to defend others. Now, what all the other gods failed to do, he's raising love to do the right thing. <laughs> but reasonable minds can differ. Uh, which raises us to the issue of delinquency of a minor and the issues of taking a child into battle. Judge Boone. So, so yes. This, this is one of those, when I was talking about duty of care and the criminal law, criminal law is, is big on the delinquency of minors, especially an adult participating in that. Clearly Thor would be in a criminal context uh, subject to culpability for what he did. But you know, you kind of ask this one question about as Gore is dying and saying, please take care of my child, and Gore says, yes, but do you mind if I take her into battle? You know, I mean, these kind of things that, uh, that just doesn't fly. Uh, and I, I know CPS would get involved in this area, for sure, and say, you know, you can't take the child into battle. However, the question is, is she a child? Has the revival that occurred made her a god and she's just in the format of a child's body? So that would be the argument that I would make if I was if I was Thor's lawyer. I would say no, she's she's an equal. It's not she's not a minor. She's a, she's she's got these powers and dig it and she, her, her eyes light up and everything and it's covered and she's equal to Thor. So, um, but in the end, I think the criminal law, the first look at it, would say yes, absolutely. We have about four and a half four and a half minutes left. If you have questions, line up at the mic and we will. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, I love you. We're going to go fast. Wow. Yes, sir. Hit us and we'll go quickly. Nobody can what on the 13th? Are we talking about the hammer? Yeah. 
TV shows in law school that you will never have watched again and are embarrassed to say you watch when you're in law school. So remember that. It's not all the paper chase. Read a lot of English books. Yep. Yeah. Right. Enjoy. Everything, everything, everything. That's why we started our blog. Yes. Every time, every time. I was a federal prosecutor, and you see the people that are federal prosecutors on TV. It doesn't work that way. I, I will say though that the 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 one that is considered the most accurate, and I actually watched in my evidence class in law school, was my cousin Vinny. So it is considered top tier. By, by most lawyers. Everything else is garbage. That is true, yeah. and I've, that is true, and I've done a presentation on my cousin Vinny and oral advocacy. Yeah. I also love the verdict. Next. Do you think they create one Yeah. We have two minutes. Go ahead. So check out the article because it's huge and everything on the raft is a gross violation of the Fourth Amendment. <laughs> bam, bam, drop the mic on that one. Drop the mic. Wow. That's very deep and, yeah. Yeah. and excellent. We recorded yeah. this. I'll ask Thomas to cover it. Yeah. <laughs> excellent. Yeah. 
not recognized in federal court. Great, great Thank you.